Hello and welcome back to Murderland Chicago, a deep dish of death, season two. Before we even begin, what a break. Because first of all, we've both received lots of messages from people who thankfully get what we're doing. Namely, we're being super nerdy about something that people usually talk about glibly, which is murder. Meredith, I had coffee recently with someone who asked me about why we started our podcast, and I was explaining to them that this whole project started off because we are trying to do something different than other murder podcasts, and we were talking about how most murder podcasts treat serial killers as if they're some kind of ubermensch, superhero, just kind of outsmarting everyone, when really, at the end of the day, these aren't special people, right? right. These are run-of-the-mill sociopaths who were able to figure out a glitch in the system that enabled them to do something crazy. And at the end of the day, these people would never have been able to do it without the cooperation of society, and that really, the reason why we're calling this Murderland Chicago is because the main character here is Chicago. Right? Yeah. <laughs> if there's ever a murderous mastermind out there, it's the actual city of Chicago in the way that the city has structured itself, in the way that our culture has formed to allow for these very unremarkable people. Okay, and I'm just I, I want to highlight and underline that word unremarkable. Okay, the reason why we're talking about these people is not to praise them, is not to raise them up, but it's for us to talk about how one city in the United States has been able to successfully allow sociopaths to run amok, right? And that's essentially what we're trying to do because we're trying to uncover how the city itself has participated in this. And listen, we didn't get into this thinking that we're going to get huge corporate sponsorships <laughs> or that somehow, you know, like, you know, Kraft Foods is going to, like, do some kind of collab with us, right? We got into this because we are two nerds who like to get into all of the gnarly details and are never satisfied with the initial response. And so I'm just, I'm really glad that there are people out there who understand it. And it's been really super touching to get messages from people who say, hey, I listen to your podcast. I get what you're doing. And that's been super, super special. Meredith, what what is your what has your reaction been to the reaction? Well, I'm thrilled that people are listening and getting some value out of this, right? Because mm -hmm. initially this started as our attempt to write a book about this. Yeah. And spoiler alert, writing a book is really hard. <laughs> so we pivoted to podcast which yeah. I think was the right move. And so mm -hmm. all of our research, the um, thinking about the implications, all the things that we'd like to do around this, like it appears to be of value to people. And so I'm really happy that that value is getting out there and that folks are liking it. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, listen, we, we are not rushing to the top of any charts, you know, like on... No, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we have been getting some really interesting feedback and some people have been listening that you know are beyond obviously like our universes and that's been really cool and sometimes i'll just get a random message on instagram that's like listen i really liked what you guys are doing and i get what you guys where you guys are going with it so we're trying to do the anti-mind hunter here right we are not trying to pretend that the criminal Serial killer mind is this labyrinthine, you know, complicated thing that you need to kind of figure out. No, these are people who you probably meet every single day who are just shitty human beings that got lucky enough to be able to be in an environment where they're able to get away with shit, right? And so I'm happy that, you know, people out there are at least responding to it. And this season, we are doing even more of that. So, Meredith, you want to talk to us a little bit about what we did last season and how that's building us up to this one? So, last season, we covered 
three serial killer cases mm-hmm. that were of a particular time in Chicago's history, right? So we were covering John Wayne Gacy, Brian Dugan, and the Ripper crew, and they were all active in the very late 1970s, early to mid 1980s. And it was a really interesting look at the city at that point in time and how uh, the dynamics between some of the city dynamics and the suburban dynamics really helped those men get away with murder. Mm-hmm. This season, we're focusing on dangerous duos, right? Yeah. So, haha, it's our second season. <laughs> but it's going to take an equally interesting look at some serial killers that were impacting the Chicagoland area. And, you know, we're going to go a little further afield, but it'll be worth it, I promise. And show how Chicago's status and as like the only really large city in the Midwest mm-hmm. has drawn a certain kind of person, a little yep. bit like a magnet, and drawn particular people together mm-hmm. in, in a way that created the conditions for them to become violent. Yeah, I, this is really extending our initial kind of thesis statement here which is that we're not we're not really focused on the individual themselves right we're focused on the environmental conditions and one of those environmental conditions is bringing like you said that magnet that sociopath magnet right and bringing additional individuals to help them with their crimes right and i think we touched a little bit on that with the ripper crew last season just how you know geographically speaking these individuals were close enough to each other to be able to you know wreak havoc on the city and here we're talking about specific instances where two people were brought together by the murderous mastermind that is chicago to (laughs) to to wreak havoc and to uh unleash some carnage on the city itself Well, before we get into it, we just want to remind everyone that the connections that we're drawing here are based on research we've done, Mm -hmm. our lived experience, some connections that we are drawing live in conversation with each other. But Mm -hmm. we are not pretending to have all the answers. And a few sources that I want to point out for this, this first couple of episodes that we're doing include news articles from the Chicago Tribune, the LA Times, the Indianapolis Star. And one thing to point out is that newspaper articles are the first draft of history, right? So there might be some errors in there. We try to compensate for that, um, but not everything is going to be very clear. But one of the better and more substantive resources for these first couple of episodes is the true crime book, Free to Kill, The True Story of Serial Murderer Larry Eiler. And that book was co-written by Geraldine Kolarik. She was a journalist and Wayne Klatt, who was a crime reporter. Okay, so one thing that we also want to point out right at the tip top of the episode is that these backgrounds of a journalist and crime reporter means (laughs) that the book has uh, a bias. Okay, so... (laughs) Yeah, there's a definite bias there. And what's so weird about this book is that it tries so hard to say how amazing... The police and journalists were at their job when we also know that that's not true because they're also oddly describing in detail the disastrous succession of blunders that ultimately led to Larry Eiler committing numerous murders. And I think it's also important for us to say, too, because we just said a couple of things that I think we need to unpack. Yes, this episode is about Larry Eiler, and you might be asking yourself, wait, they're talking about dangerous duos. And if you are asking yourself that question, you win a golden star because, yes, we've we've buried the lead here, if you will, <laughs> because Larry Eiler may have not done this by himself. And there's probably a really, really good probability that he did not, but we are going to uncover that information later on in the episode right now the murder if you are to look legally speaking at what the court documents say only one person was responsible for these murders and that was larry eiler but 
as we'll see, that gets a little bit more complicated. But Meredith, what did you think about the book? Well, I think it's really telling that there is an epilogue that mm-hmm. is very, like a very apologist epilogue. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a former professor from Loyola named yeah. George Anastoplo. I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. He has some street cred because he sued the Illinois Bar Association for not letting him join their organization. And the reason that he had not been allowed to join their organization is that he was associated with communists. And that was he was basically blacklisted because of that. Yeah. But putting that aside, this apologist epilogue really goes into, well, it couldn't have been any other way. Everybody did their jobs to the best of their ability, and there was nothing that could have been done differently, right? I'm Mm -hmm. oversimplifying, but that (laughs) it doesn't show anybody in their best light. It shows a lot of errors, a lot of errors of Mm -hmm. judgment, of procedure, of law that led to murders that could have been prevented. Yeah, yeah. And despite its biases, this book does seem to have a very meticulously researched and outlined sequence of events, which I know you and I love, Meredith, right? Mm -hmm. And because of this, the book is kind of difficult to read. I mean, you and I read a lot. (laughs) We read a lot of these true crime books, um, and this one is is kind of a slog to get through. Um, It's much less sensational than some of the other kind of true crime books out there because it really gets into the weeds of why, you know, some of these things happened, right? Um, so it's not a page turner, which is a shame because this should be a case study of two specific things that went wrong in this case. First, ambiguous instructions within a police department, and second, poor coordination between different police units. But unfortunately, it doesn't really talk about those things in a very, what's the word I'm looking for here? Compelling. Uh, Compelling, accessible way, Right. right? Because instead, it just goes into like black letter law, which I don't think your average, you know, reader really wants to get into the constitutional nuances of search and seizure, which this book does for about 200 pages, right? Mm -hmm. It, It really does. So we are going to gloss over those, those details, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's necessary if you're very interested in this and it was necessary to go over it with the fine tooth comb in the moment. But my goodness, you do need to be an expert. Yeah. So we're focusing more on the environment. Yep. The Chicagoland area. And we are venturing into Indiana. This is part one of the Larry Eiler episodes. And the reason why we're doing it this way is because it is extremely difficult to organize all of this information. And so Meredith and I decided that this first episode is going to be an overview. There are tons of moving parts. There are multiple states. There are also multiple theories about what happened because unlike many other of the serial killers that we have covered thus far, there is not just one consistent story and there's not just one case. There are multiple cases involved in these murders. So as a result, this first episode, broad strokes, overview we're going to be getting more into the details with the next two episodes coming up but for this one we want to just give everyone a taste of how distasteful larry eiler was so that it's a little bit clearer when we start bringing up the details later on with that let's get started we're going to be Mm -hmm. talking about larry eiler the never found guilty professor little And how the highways in between Indianapolis and Chicago became even scarier than they already are. And we have to talk about the Indianapolis-Chicago drive and how utterly iconic it is. If you're not from the Midwest, you might not know the pleasures that exist between the city of Chicago and Indianapolis, but I'm going to name a couple of them so that, you know, everyone here can get a feel for what kind of untold treasures are to be found along that trek. Cheap gas, guns, (laughs) fireworks, lottery tickets, 
And in the case of some of my really shitty friends in high school, going to Indiana to go cow tipping and looking for psychedelic mushrooms in their shit. There are other perils too. Tornadoes, Republicans. Um, there's also that weird crow from the Indiana Beach commercials that used to say, there's more than just corn in Indiana. If you're from the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. And the road does not just go one way from Chicago to Indianapolis. People come to Chicago all the time for medicine, supplies, books that aren't banned by Republicans, VHS tapes, and plenty of calico and denim to keep them warm during the winter. It's sort of a symbiotic relationship that exists between Chicago and Indianapolis, two of the largest, if not the largest, cities in the Midwest. And we give them the 21st century, and they give us guns that allow us to continue being Murderland Chicago. And that's the cycle. There's another cycle that we're going to be hitting here, which is some of the recurring themes that we already started in season one. So Meredith, you want to talk to us about some of those? Yeah. So some of the recurring themes from season one include the anonymous nature of cruising, which leads to unidentified victims. Yep. Also crossing state, county, and city lines to avoid attracting too much attention. We'll see Mm -hmm. that. High body counts due to the less dead features of the victims. So some examples are like they're transient, maybe trading sex for a ride, young men, honestly. Mm -hmm. And Chicago's status as the functionally gay mecca that attracted both Eiler and multiple victims to the area. Yeah, you know, I think part of that young men idea of being less dead is that the whole idea of boys will be boys uh that cuts both ways right right? in that yes it allows for some really egregious behavior to be done by boys but it also allows for some really egregious behavior to be done to boys because the idea is that they are leading riskier lives as a result right and a lot of the things that you're talking about here still exist to this day You know, gay men are still cruising, especially in areas that do not have an established gay community. You still have a lot of people coming from the Midwest to Chicago as a gay mecca. You know, one of the reasons why Chicago's gay pride is so attended is because you have literally thousands of people pouring in from our Republican neighbor states to enjoy Chicago's pride. But In this episode and talking about Larry Eiler, we're going to be talking about some differences that did not exist in our previous episodes. The first one is the fact that Larry Eiler and Professor Little were both gay, yes, but they were members of a subculture within the gay community known as the leather community. And Chicago is a major international destination for the leather community, thanks to the International Mr. Leather Competition. If you're gay, you probably know it by its acronym, IML, and the numerous leather bars that existed and continue to exist. Meredith, have you ever been to IML or to a leather bar? I have not, no. (laughs) But I have recently watched the movie Cruising, starring Al Pacino. Yes, you have. And I want to let our audience know something, which is that I made Meredith watch the movie Cruising, and I wanted to make it actually a prerequisite to even listen to this episode. But sadly, Meredith informed me that we do not have the technology for that. But I highly encourage everyone to watch it because it is a classic psychological terror film from 1980. Meredith, I made you watch this. Can you give us first a brief recap and then second, what your review of the movie is? Uh, We'll start with the recap. So (laughs) cruising takes place in New York City where a serial killer is killing young men. The only connections between the victims so far when the movie opens is that they're all white men of slim build. They've got mm-hmm. dark hair and dark eyes, and they are members of the city's gay community. Well, you know? not just the gay community, right? The gay leather community, yeah. There you go, mm-hmm. yeah. Al Pacino plays a young cop who is directed to go undercover to try and identify the killer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Most of the movie follows Al Pacino as he explores leather bars throughout the city, and he learns about cruising culture, like 
you know, which colored handkerchiefs <laughs> signal what flavor of sexual activity that you're looking for. Yeah. Okay. So meanwhile, we also follow the killer as he stalks and kills more men. Yeah. It's actually really well done. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually in the movie, Al Pacino hones in on the killer and he uses what he's learned about cruising to trap and capture the killer. Mm-hmm. This is my own like personal opinion of movies is is that mm-hmm. like so this one is not like a lot of crime movies from the late 70s and early 80s. Like a lot of those yeah. movies are super slow and super boring and hard to watch. Yeah, they're slogs. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cruising, however, keeps up a good pace. Okay, so Mm -hmm. I personally think that the script could have been a little bit tighter and that El Pacino's character could have been developed a little bit more because as an audience, we don't really understand what he's thinking and feeling about what he's learning, how he's behaving. He's very uh, uh, a character of few words, right? I think that could Mm -hmm. have been developed a little bit more, but... It's pretty good. It kept my yeah. interest. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's not too gory. It is terrifying, right? It really mm-hmm. builds. It's, that's really good. Yeah. Um, but one of the more frustrating elements of this movie is actually one of the most realistic scenes mm-hmm. because cruising depicts both good and bad cops and a bunch of innocent people getting killed before their time. Yeah, I really like this movie. I might give some spoilers here, but this movie is also 43 years old now, so we're well within spoiler amnesty period here. And when I told you to watch it, I had just rewatched it. So besides Al Pacino, Ed O'Neill is actually in it as well, who you might know from Married with Children or Modern Family. James Remar for Mortal Kombat, the old school one in 1997, and Sex in the City. And then... <laughs> weirdly enough william russ who was the dad in boy meets world is also in it and they're all obviously super young in the movie none of them were famous yet and when al pacino is hooking up with one dude and says lips or hips i fucking lost it because (laughs) it's just so unexpected to see some of these actors in these roles, right? Mm-hmm. And what I also think is really interesting about this movie, and that brings us up to, you know, the, the whole point and why I want you to watch it, is that the mainstream LGBTQ community hated this movie, okay? They hated it because they felt like it negatively portrayed the LGBT community. However... There is a very interesting dichotomy because this film actually brought on a lot of consultants from the leather community to basically explain to them how the leather community worked. Mm-hmm. So you have these two factions. You have the mainstream LGBTQ community very upset about how this community is being portrayed, whereas you have actual community members of this subculture saying – No, that's actually how it is. And for me, as a outsider, I let me also just put this out there. I do not belong to the leather subcommunity. But at the end of the day, as an outsider looking in and having been to IML numerous times, having been to leather bars, yes, it's pretty spot on when it's Mm -hmm. when you're taking it as not necessarily a depiction of the LGBTQ community as a whole, but for the leather community. One of the biggest complaints about the movie was their depictions of power dynamics being sexually exploited in the film. But as we're going to see, that's actually a major point of the leather community. It's all playing with symbols of power and codified ritual, which is what brings us to difference number two. Like we said before, this is dangerous duo territory. And here, there are two of them allegedly. Unlike Gacy and Dugan, there's a whole other person that we have to take into account. But, like the Ripper crew, there's a power differential. But that differential was not necessarily the source of any sexual pleasure between them. Here, we have Larry Eiler and, allegedly, the Professor. And if we believe Eiler and many other very reputable sources, there's reason to believe that there was a sexual relationship being driven by the power differential between 
Euler and the professor, as well as the power differential displayed between Euler and his numerous victims. Right. And we're going to talk about that power dynamic later in this series because the relationship, as you said, between Euler and Professor Little could have been somewhat similar to the dynamic that we saw with the Chicago Ripper crew last season. Yeah. And basically, there's an argument to be made that Euler might have been more of a puppet than a singularly motivated killer. We're going to get into the reasons for that. But I think there's a very strong argument for that. And before we even get there, I did say there were three differences. There is a third major difference between the Eiler murders and what we talked about in season one. And this one is also a trigger warning. Unlike Gacy, who typically manipulated or drugged his victims, this case involved a fair number of hustlers, including underage victims who were engaging in sex work. And while sex work is a topic we did cover when we spoke about the Ripper crew, this is also in the midst of the AIDS crisis, which is what drove gay sex work even further underground. So trigger warning here for our listeners. As always, we never include information just for shock value, but we will be discussing the factual realities of the murder of underage victims. Right. So let's do a recap of what happened. Okay. Yeah. Early on a hot August morning in 1984, in the far north side neighborhood of Rogers Park, a janitor for a small apartment building began his day by preparing the building's dumpsters for the day's trash pickup. On this day, there was a lot more trash than usual, and the janitor mm-hmm. was ticked off about this. <laughs> right? He thought that residents from neighboring buildings were using his dumpster. Okay. Meredith, you own a house in Chicago. Yeah. Um, are, are there dumpster wars in your alley? Thankfully not. <laughs> but the difference between owning a, a single family home and yeah. being the janitor for a multi-unit apartment building is bundled in one of the taxes and, and utility fees that we pay mm-hmm. is the trash pickup. Right. For apartment units, uh, apartment buildings of a certain size the management or maybe a condo association, there's an organization that pays, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can get fines. If, yep. Right. So I, I don't know the nitty gritty details, but <laughs> the janitor was, well, he was not in the wrong. Yeah. No, he was not. Right. Everybody has to pay their share of the cost of having mm-hmm. a functioning trash pickup system in the yep. city. So I get it. Like, I think we all get it. He mm-hmm. some, he sees, like, way too much trash. There, it's in his dumpster, which means somebody's not doing what they ought to be doing. Somebody's freeloading mm-hmm. on his building yep. stuff. Okay. So what's he going to do? What are you going to do? He's going to do some investigating. So he mm-hmm. opens up one of these trash bags. And he recognizes that, like, this is the new trash because it's a totally different bag, right? So, mm-hmm. so put yourself in his shoes. You know the building. You know, like, the kind of trash bags that typically show up in the dumpster. So he's like, all right, who's using these extra thick, like, expensive trash bags in my not super fabulous wealthy neighborhood? Who's who's spending Mm -hmm. money on this? Okay. So he opens up the trash, one of the trash bags, and what does he find? He finds dismembered body parts. Okay. Yeah. Just... It's like early morning, like nobody's awake and he's got to deal with this. Okay. Just, Mm -hmm. just, oh my gosh. So those body parts were the remains of a 15 year old boy named Danny Bridges. A short time later, Larry Eiler, who was at that time living in that apartment building, was arrested and charged for Danny's murder. Yeah. So that's what tips off this whole gruesome story. But before we even get there, let's talk about good old Chicago and how Chicago was part of this entire clusterfuck. Rogers Park is a neighborhood in Chicago on the far north side. And in the 1980s, Rogers Park was not the one that we know and love today. Eiler, at the time, was living at 1628 West Sherwin Avenue. That is the location of the apartment building where the remains were found. 
It's a big, beautiful building that's still there to this very day. And Meredith, I actually found a link that shows what the apartments inside look like. Uh, do you want to take a look? Yeah, let me open this up. It's real nice. It's it is. It's very nice I, yeah. inside. We've got um, wooden floors, polished wooden floors, archways, yep. steam heat, which... <laughs> You mentioned I'm in a house. We have gas heat, and it's, there are times I miss that steam heat. It is yeah, it is not to be discounted. Built-in shelving that that looks like a pantry that's built in. Yeah, craftsman details. Yeah, it's real nice. <laughs> it's a nice so place. It, it is a nice place, and it, it makes sense why they didn't tear it down after finding out about this. Yeah. Uh, what actually allegedly happened there, but. You know, location-wise, it's right off the Jarvis stop on the red line near the corner of Tui and Clark. No one's ever talked about this before, and I have not been able to find this in any biography or any true crime book. But that is literally a stone's throw away from where the leather community in Chicago was centered on Clark and Devon. So... Again, one of the big differences here, even though we have talked about Gacy before and we've talked about cruising, this is a very different type of cruising. This is a very different community because we're not just talking about the gay community, which at that time was centered in the Gold Coast. We are talking specifically about the gay leather community. Okay, and it's about a five minute car drive and a 10 minute bus ride from 1628 West Sherwin to Touche, which has been a staple bar in the leather community of Chicago since 1977. So, again, this is why Chicagoans, we need to cover our own serial killers because no one as of yet has actually even come up with, that's probably the reason why he lived there. Right. Okay? Mm -hmm. He lived there because he wanted to be close to what his community, where they were going to be. And they were going to be centered right there. And that bar is still open to this day. So, Meredith, we talked about where he lived, but who was Larry Eiler? Larry Eiler was a brutal serial killer. He kidnapped, tortured, and killed teen boys and young men all along the highways from Indianapolis and Terre Haute, Indiana, to Chicago between the years of 1978 and 1984. Larry Eiler was primarily active in Indiana with a typical MO of picking up hitchhikers along I-70 and US-40, which are highways that link Indianapolis and Terre Haute. Mm -hmm. He liked young men in their late teens through early 20s. And what he would do is tie them up and blindfold them and then stab them to death. Okay, yeah. so many of these young men are buried in shallow graves in fields alongside the highways. But wait a second, Meredith. I hear you saying that a lot of these murders did not happen in Chicago. So why are we even talking about this dude? To answer that, we actually need to go back to our episodes on John Wayne Gacy. Okay, so in those episodes, we talked about how Chicago, as the largest city in the Midwest, acts as sort of a gay mecca for young people throughout rural communities and small towns in the Midwest. Yeah. When Eiler was a young man in the 1970s, this was still very much the case. Okay, so mm -hmm. he lived in Terre Haute at that time um, and also a little bit in Indianapolis. They Those towns are fairly close together. Mm -hmm. Although he lived in Terre Haute and Indianapolis for most of his killing career, Eiler and his older lover, Dr. Robert Little, frequently traveled to Chicago. Eiler spent so much time in Chicago's uptown neighborhood that the local sex worker community recognized him on site and warned each other about him. Mm -hmm. Although he's thought to have killed as many as 24 people, and although he was active just a few short years after John Wayne Gacy, Larry Eiler has largely faded from public memory. So why is that? AIDS. Um, you know, the AIDS epidemic was starting and people did not want to talk about the gay community. Um, it was extremely taboo, yeah. but you know, it wasn't just that. And there are other possible reasons as to why it is that, you know, this case itself did not garner the media attention that 
Gacy did just a couple years prior. So, right. you know, Meredith, what are some of those other reasons? Right. One big one is that Eiler was more or less openly gay. Okay. Yeah. Unlike Gacy, he had no pretense of being a normal middle class family guy, business owner type of guy. In other words, unlike Gacy, Eiler did not carefully build social capital. He didn't yeah. maintain a steady job. He didn't have his own place. He was not friends with his neighbors. He did not seek opportunities <laughs> with anything. This dude did not give a fuck about anything right. mm-hmm. besides fucking, right? Yeah, exactly. So even though he had a similar type of victim as Gacy, those yeah. victims, they came from a much broader geographical area. So like, mm-hmm. like way down into Indiana, all the way up to Chicagoland and a little bit beyond those roots, right? He was all over the place and kind of flying under the radar because he doesn't have a steady job and people are going to avoid him because he's an openly gay man. Yep. That's 180 miles of road mm-hmm. that he is stalking where and Gacy was comparatively just like stuck to the little borders of Chicagoland, right? Yeah. 180 miles. That might not sound alike, but in the case of Indianapolis and Chicago, that 180 miles separates two vastly different worlds. Right. Like we've already said, it's an easy drive relatively from Chicago to Indianapolis. A lot of people do it. But as you know, there is an invisible divide between the two states of Indiana and Illinois that's not just geopolitical. When you get on I-65 in Indiana, the billboards change. In Chicago, they're all Brian Urlacher telling you to get hair transplants, right? But (laughs) once you hit the I-65, it's all hell is real, end human sacrifice, abolish abortion, Jesus is real. I mean, they get very right-wing very quick. I don't know about you, Meredith, but for me, I-65 gets really scary, not because of the road itself, but because you realize, shit, I'm not in Chicago anymore. But back to Larry, what do we know about him? We're going to go back to the beginning of Larry and his genesis, but here's a brief intro into what we do know and what you should remember as we go through his past, okay? Mm -hmm. Things that are agreed on are Larry Eiler was vain. Yeah. Larry Eiler had several lovers. It, 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 when we say several, we're saying several lovers always at the same time. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Larry Eiler seemed to be addicted to interpersonal <laughs> drama despite not being committed to any one person. Okay. Yeah. This guy was jealous and he cultivated jealousy in his lovers. So ultimately, as we'll see in this episode and the next couple of episodes, it seems that jealousy-fueled anger was Eiler's trigger to target and kill people. I want to highlight the vanity part here because Larry was tall. That's kind of one of the first things that people would remark about him is that he was remarkably tall. He was over six feet. Mm -hmm. He was also white and he was also a fitness nut. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later on, but within the leather community, all of those things hold major currency. Why? Because they're symbols of power. Like we talked about before, one of the major components of the leather community is the sexualization of the differentials in the power dynamic between individuals. It's actually the reason why the whole getup is militaristic and heavily borrows from World War I and World War II. If you ever have a chance to go to a leather bar, it's super weird because you can't see anyone's face. They all wear really big aviator glasses and they have on these Nazi Punisher hats and usually weird cop mustaches. Leather bars are dark too, typically because people are smoking and lights are typically dimmed in order to be able to conceal sexual activity. And you'll also see, too, that the vast majority of people that are in there are white. So, the only real distinguishing features that you can really tell from someone are their height, whatever's sticking out of their pants, (laughs) and typically their body. So... In the situation of Larry Eiler, who was tall, had, you know, a pretty decent upper body, and was white, he would be considered a pretty solid catch in that world. But 
like most gay men, not just in the leather community, Larry Eiler, like you already alluded to, was a major drama queen. So can you talk to us a little bit about why and how this drama queen came to be? Yeah. Eiler was born on December 21st of 1952, and he grew up as the youngest of four kids in Indianapolis. Unfortunately, his childhood was not stable. His parents divorced when he was just two years old. And this is the heartbreaking part. So Eiler's mother would periodically give Eiler and his sister to other families to raise because she simply could Mm. not afford to keep all four children all of the time. Yeah. She would go back and reclaim the children when she was able to, and she remarried three times in an apparent effort to give her children a father figure and increase the family's financial stability. Because remember, you know, four kids, she's a single working mother, but women at this time can't even have their own credit line. Okay, she's in a bind. Yeah. Unfortunately, Eiler was reportedly abused by both his father and all of his stepfathers. I mean, parenting was definitely not a science back in the day, Meredith, but, you know, I think it really is sobering to kind of read these stories and realize how commonplace some of these things were. I love the point that you bring up about the fact that, you know, we can't just blame the mom here. Mm -hmm. The the mom was really trying to create a, a stable situation, even when that situation was unstable. Why? Because she is responding to societal expectations of her as well right yeah yeah like she might have to get with a guy who's abusive because she knows that the alternative is so much worse for herself and her kids you know and honestly i'm not trying to be an apologist here or say that abuse is ever right but you know like everything that we do here in this podcast we have to understand it and understand all the factors that inform it it's heartbreaking but, yeah. you know, it, it's really important that we also highlight the fact that his mom was in a bind herself. Unsurprisingly, in this situation, Eiler acted out at school when he was a young boy. It was so bad that he actually underwent a psych eval when he was 12 years old. Okay, yeah. so this would have been around 1964, 65. So... We can't be really confident in how rigorous that evaluation would have been. Yeah, because probably like half of them were like, do you identify with the Communist Party? Yeah. <laughs> we can't be confident that he was getting the best care from, right. from the time period. And he's in, a, in an underserved area of the country, right? It's the Midwest. Mm-hmm. This is not the East Coast. But we do know that in the end, the report indicated that Eiler had separation and abandonment anxiety and that he did not feel loved or secure at home. Which would inform the jealousy. Exactly. And it's not a surprise given what we just learned about him. Yeah. As a result of the evaluation, 12-year-old Eiler was removed from his home and sent to a Catholic boarding school for about five months. Mm -hmm. Okay, So we're looking at a situation of neglect, abuse, essentially abandonment and being sent away to school. And based on the time period, we can maybe guess that it was clear to Eiler's parents and stepfathers that he was gay by this age. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe some of the abuse he suffered was a direct result of that. Yeah. So even today, there is this popular conservative notion that LGBTQ plus people are merely suffering from mental illness and that they need treatment instead of affirmation and acceptance. Let's unpack that just very quickly, because when we say that he was most likely targeted as a result of the suspicion that he was gay, we are not saying in any way, shape, or form that abuse and being gay are somehow interconnected. But we are highlighting a very true and very sad fact, which is that when pedophiles are able to recognize a difference in a child that they are able to manipulate and exploit they are going to use that and in many cases pedophiles know that a child who is perceived to be gay is going to be much more reticent about talking to adults about their sexual behavior it is a sad situation that society has created in embedding homophobia to the extent that we have within our culture 
to the fa- to the point where children who are gay who are victims of sexual abuse do not even want to report it because they are afraid of the connotation that is going to be marked upon them as a result of reporting out so you know again no we are not saying that being gay and being abused are somehow interconnected but we are recognizing the very real connection that exists as a result of the internalized homophobia of our culture right and it's entirely possible that at least some of his stepfathers were initially drawn to Eiler's mother because they recognized that yep. as an opportunity for them yeah the 50s and 60s again were just a terrible time to be a single mother like we're talking about pay disparities that were much mm-hmm. greater than they are today and women also struggled to access just the basic financial infrastructure outside of a marriage, like yeah. getting your own credit card or a loan or like a, a mortgage. So yeah. we understand like she she needed financial stability. The path to financial stability is a man. Um, and I understand why she kept on trying to do that, yeah. right? The succession of stepfathers. And just to point out my own financial illiteracy here, Meredith, um, I did not know that line of credit also included being able to get a credit card. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you. We all learn on this podcast, yeah. okay? And I just learned that. That one was um, new for women in the 1970s. It was the first time women ins- could open their own credit card. That's insane. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I, I say that, I know, obviously, like, with a lot of male privilege, but, you know, I had no idea that that was, that was a situation. Um, And you think about just how much credit cards just rule everything. Yes. It's just hard for us, I think, collectively to put ourselves back in that situation. For all of our listeners out there, I watch a lot of horror films, and I recently rewatched all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. And I'm not sure if you remember number three, which is the Dream Warriors, which is arguably one of the, the better ones. In the Dream Warriors, there's a really horrible uh, stepdad. And the mom just, like, drags these, like, random dudes into the house. And it's weird that I watched it while doing research for Larry Eiler because it reminded me, yeah, this this was what good parenting looked like yeah. back in the 1980s. It was bringing some random dude who had a job into the house mm-hmm. that you would then, then tell your kids, hey, call this dude dad now. Exactly. And we even see that today in the pressure to make sure that children have a good father figure. Even yeah. if their father is out of the picture for whatever reason, there is this pressure to, yep. to have that as a role model. Um, mm-hmm. Very much still true. But back to Eiler. So mm-hmm. eventually he ages into adulthood, promptly drops out of school, gets a GED, and then joins a monastery briefly. That might be the influence <laughs> of the Catholic boarding school that he was sent to. And then he begins a succession of low-paying jobs. <laughs> Meredith, again, this is where I ask myself sometimes, Jonathan, are you really empathizing with a serial killer again? Because I don't want to get this is not a podcast about me, but I had a very also tumultuous childhood Mm -hmm. and I went to Catholic school and I loved it. And I think people think that's weird because as a gay man, they're like, well, yeah, didn't you feel like ostracized? And yes, all of the above. Right. Sure. But it's the structure yeah. That really just made me feel like yeah, I wanted to be there. I used to cry when I couldn't go to school, right? Wow. And that feeling translated itself into me briefly thinking about becoming a priest mm-hmm. because of how much I liked being in that environment. So looking at Larry Eiler, obviously, he came from a very, very dysfunctional background. I do not want to compare mine to his whatsoever, mm-hmm. but... I do understand the draw that the monastery and that the Catholic Church would have to someone coming from that environment and finally feeling like this structure allowed them to be able to blossom, right? Stability is what it is. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, after his flirtation with the monastery, uh, in 1975, when Eiler was around 22, he enrolled Mm -hmm. at Indiana State University, so ISU, and the campus is located in Terre Haute. This is where he meets Dr. Robert Little, who is much older, right? He's a professor. He's a chairman of the School of Library Science. And Mm -hmm. just to put that out there, that's the degree that you would go for if you wanted to become a librarian. (laughs) Yes. 
I'm laughing because you're a librarian. I, yeah, well, that is the degree that I have. You and you, Doctor Little, have the same degree. Okay, continue. yeah, 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 yeah. Apparently, Eiler and Little hit it off enough that Eiler moved into Little's home and basically became a kept man. Yeah. This lasted for about seven years. Okay, so yeah. during that time, during those seven years, they did a lot of traveling between Chicago and Indianapolis. <laughs> this is still very much the reality of today. Like, like, very, like, I recently, like, okay, so I, I also have an Instagram, you know, that that I, I talk to other uh, people on, and recently there was a, a guy that I, I talked to um, who was visiting San Francisco and wanted to go out for a beer, and I said, sure, and he said, yeah, like, I, I'm gonna, uh, it's okay if, if I bring this guy um he's traveling with me i said sure yeah you know of course like bring whoever you want to right and i had seen the guy before in his pictures because they also they always used to quote unquote travel together and the guy is also you know a bit younger than you know like this this other guy you know but i i didn't really kind of know the the nature of the relationship so i go to the bar i meet both of them i'm talking and i'm like oh okay so like how do you guys know each other like are you guys like friends and they're being very very dodgy about it and eventually they say well actually we're boyfriends and i was like oh okay. why not just say that <laughs> meredith that's the million dollar question okay i don't know but what i'm trying to say is that this whole kind of gay cultural coding of travel partner still exists to this very day you you'll see people like on instagram where they're just always traveling together but they'll never actually say we're together so even though that is what I'm able to decipher from the fact that they travel together and they live together, the official version, the one that's in court documents, is that Larry Eiler and the professor were not a couple. They just spent a lot of time together. And the professor wants us to believe, at least through his lawyers, mm -hmm. that he was just a father figure to Larry Eiler and that they were just friends. Also, we're going to put out there that Professor Little is ugly. I don't care what world you're putting him into. He looks like Madeline Albright in male drag. And there is a part in Free to Kill that personally gave me chills. Someone who was friends with Larry talking about going to Larry's house that he shared with the professor. Quote, On a whim, Larry took a co-worker, Karen Burke, to his home at the other end of town to make her quiche for lunch. The spacious condominium townhouse was far beyond the means of Larry's salary. He was staying with a library science professor and made sure he cleaned up so the kitchen was as spotless as the rest of the house. And Meredith, I am going to explain now why that gave me chills mm -hmm. okay which is that i i've never had a sugar daddy okay mm -hmm. and if you don't know what a sugar daddy is it is an older man who in return for sexual favors provides you with financial eh, stability depending on how 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 wealthy your, your sugar daddy is right mm -hmm. i think in the case of a lot of gay men in their early 20s sugar daddies are a pretty pervasive part of our community Okay, and I have had the displeasure of interacting with a number of sugar daddies, not mine, but friends who were with sugar daddies. It's not a relationship in a traditional sense, because at the end of the day, you are their employee. You're their employee because you're being paid. Yep. And the reason why that sentence, that part gave me chills is because when you are dealing with someone who is in a relationship like that, even in their home, they are quote unquote on. They're on because they know they're on duty. They need to make sure everything has to be catered to the breadwinner's likes and their, and their tastes. And in this case, you know, Larry Eiler can't even be comfortable in his own home. And that's the case for any sugar baby. Yes, it might seem, and I think everyone jokes about it, like, oh, I need a sugar daddy. Sugar daddies are, a sugar daddy would really help me out right now. But you need to realize that it is a job. You are performing a service for which you are being compensated. Mm -hmm. And in the case of being a live-in sugar baby, you're, you're literally bringing your work home with you. All right, so he's 
brought his work home with him. He is the live-in housekeeper, sexual favors person <laughs> for Dr. Little, right? Yeah. And both Eiler and Dr. Little are kind of like half in Terre Haute, half in Indianapolis, right? The campus, yeah. there's a home. These are two urban-ish centers, okay? Yep. So there's a couple of highways that run in between them. They enable travel between Terre Haute and Indianapolis. So one of those yeah. highways is I-70. Mm-hmm. That one's the more modern one. It's a divided highway. My husband and I were recently on a road trip down that way. And my favorite billboard on I-70 was shackled by lust. Jesus sets free. (laughs) The other highway, more or less parallel between those two cities is US 40. That Mm -hmm. one is older, right? It was replaced by I-70 or surplanted by I-70s. The tree line and farmland and people's yards are right up close to that road. Yeah, and I think that the distinction is important because, you know, if you're not from a Midwestern city, you might not realize that in between metro areas, there is literally nothing. And I-70, you know, whereas it might seem that being on a highway, you might be safer, it actually created a more anonymous way of traveling because no one sees you. There aren't, there, you don't have these houses right up next to the road, right? right? Mm-hmm. So you basically have these very convenient ways for Larry Eiler and the professor to be able to travel anonymously between these two cities, right? And they're not just traveling between Indianapolis and Terre Haute. They're also going to Chicago. Why? Because it's just a three-hour drive away. To this very day, a lot of gay men come from Indianapolis to Chicago. Now, Indianapolis is the next largest city in the Midwest. It's the capital of Indiana. It's a big sports town. But because Indiana has always been more conservative especially in the early 1980s, gay men from the cornfields and gay men from the city of Indianapolis would come up to Chicago as a destination for nightlife. Eiler and Little, like many gay men in the Midwest, would drive up to Chicago to meet people, go cruising, and generally enjoy themselves. It was a vacation. So Eiler during these travels, would actually meet a couple of people that would eventually become lovers and that would bring him back to the city more often. One of them was John Dobrovolskis, which we're going to get very into the weeds with that relationship later. Right. But for now, we're in the 70s with Larry and Dr. Little. Mm -hmm. The earliest attack that we know about happened in 1978. Eiler picked up a hitchhiker drove him out to a forest, and stabbed him. Mm -hmm. This particular hitchhiker was an ex-Marine and managed to get away, but he declined to press charges. Mm -hmm. So how did this not get prosecuted when it was clearly kidnapping and attempted murder, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's the big question. So contemporaneous news accounts suggest that no charges were pressed due to the victim's embarrassment And the police were happy to go along with this because Eiler claimed that the stabbing was part of consensual sexual role play. Yeah. All right. So this sounds a lot like Chicago police's discomfort with homosexuality that we saw when people spoke up against Gacy. Yeah. And it's it's super fucked up. Like just the fact that that was a reality, you know, and the fact that police during this time just did not give a fuck about crimes that happened in vulnerable populations after that between 78 and 80 we don't hear a whole lot from larry but starting in 1980 bodies start piling up and the bulk of murderous activity is between 1982 and 1984 which was also just an insane time for serial killers in chicago yeah As a reminder, this is the same time period that the Ripper crew was kidnapping and brutally murdering women, and when Brian Dugan was attacking women throughout Chicagoland. Let's not forget, this is also the time when the Tylenol killer was making their first entrance into Chicago's murder scene. 
And there's also another killer starting to make itself known in Chicago, but this one is not a physical killer. This is the time when a mysterious illness starts to seemingly attack only gay men, and which is only then being recognized by the medical community. One of the early names for this epidemic was GRID, the Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Disorder. By 1983, the illness was known as AIDS, but most people had internalized it as a disease that only impacted gay men. And when multiple victims started to turn up with similar wounds and circumstances surrounding their deaths, Indiana police set up a task force to try to find the killer. At this point, there were at least 20 bodies that all fit the same M.O. Mm. But here's the thing. The bodies are everywhere. They're found as far north as Kenosha in Wisconsin, as far southwest as Effingham, Illinois, and as far southeast as Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah. All the victims are teen boys or young men. Many had their pants pulled down partway. All were stabbed to death in the chest and abdomen. So although the relationship between the gay community and the local police was strained, This task force did receive several tips about potential suspects, including tips about Larry Eiler, okay? He'd become known in the Indianapolis and Terre Haute gay community for having a bad temper, and he'd also scared a couple people as a result of of that temper coming out. The police did some digging, and they put Eiler under surveillance at this time, but they Mm -hmm. didn't come up with anything that would allow them to make an arrest, Then, in September 1983, a highway trooper spotted Eiler's truck parked on the side of the highway, and he stopped to investigate. It was clear that he'd interrupted something between Eiler and a young hitchhiker, but it wasn't clear if that interruption was simply of something sexual or if the officer had actually thwarted another murder. The trooper brought Eiler to the police station. Indiana police proceeded to make critical legal errors that ultimately (laughs) led to all of that evidence being thrown out mm-hmm. and a judge would rule that Eiler and his truck were improperly searched and seized and we're going to yeah. talk a lot more about this and we're going to go into <laughs> a lot of, of depth here but this is the overview okay yeah yeah at this time in the timeline indiana and illinois police were cooperating and everyone had been so excited they were finally going to get Eiler off the street but when the case against Eiler collapsed due to the lack of admissible evidence the Indiana police were publicly embarrassed and Illinois police were very angry. I think one of the things that people don't realize is that each state has its own laws. And in this case, we're not just talking about one state. We're talking about the state of Wisconsin. We're talking about the state of Illinois, Indiana, and even Kentucky. So when you start crossing those geopolitical barriers you're also crossing legal barriers as well so this this whole case gets complicated real quick after larry was released because of these blunders that happened in indiana eiler knew he could not go back to indiana because the local police were on to him and they were watching so he went to the only out-of-state city where he felt comfortable and knew the scene which was Chicago. And Eiler was a kept man. He never had a lot of money. Back in Indiana, he was living with Dr. Little. Where could he go to? Well, remember when we said that Larry Eiler and Professor Little used to come to Chicago a lot, and that during those trips, Eiler would meet people that he would eventually form relationships with? As we said, one of them was a guy in Chicago by the name of John Derbovolsky, who was a married man to a woman because remember it's the 1980s and there is no gay marriage yet larry stayed with john often and with a little help from the professor financially he finally makes the big move to the windy city where everything begins to unravel for him so how did they finally catch larry who is john derbovolsky is he in fact polish and what happened to that cute rogers park apartment and Where the fuck is the professor? We'll get into all of that next week when we do episode two covering Larry Eiler. Next week, we're going to go into the police investigation, which is going to cover all sorts of things such as the satanic panic. One of our favorites. One of our favorites. (laughs) 
the Hells Angels connection or supposed connection. Yeah, and other motorcycle gangs, right? Exactly. And we're going to go into the specific victims and who they were. So yeah. Stay tuned and come back next week. Thanks for listening. Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death, was created and produced by us, Jonathan Sanchez-Leos and Meredith Halsey. Our theme music is The Original Chicago Blues, which was composed by James White in 1915 and performed by Katerina Storchius in 2021. Artwork is by Laura Gosdell. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible, including the friends and family who listened, gave constructive feedback, and offered advice and pointers on recording and editing. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death on your podcast app. Follow us on Patreon at Murderland Chicago. And find us on Instagram at Deep Dish of Death. Throughout the making of this podcast, we did quite a bit of research to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, but we know that sometimes information sources contain errors, and we accept that, in conversation, we may have introduced errors to the stories. To that point, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please send any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors to us at deepdishofdeath at gmail.com.